I live with someone who hasn't been vaccinated against COVID-19. He's my first grader. Like all of his classmates and anyone under 12 years old, Davi can't yet get one of the authorized vaccines. But as schools return to full-time in-person learning, they're doing so in the face of a rapidly rising fourth wave of the pandemic that is affecting mainly unvaccinated people. And because the prevailing Delta variant is so highly infectious, more young children are being diagnosed with COVID-19 than in previous waves. Many parents and school administrators are faced with a dilemma of growing urgency. How do we ensure that kids are safe at school while still reaping the benefits of in-person learning? That was Alicia Zhou reading from her first opinion, we know how to keep kids safe from COVID-19 in school. Now we need to do it. Alicia is the chief science officer at Color, a health technology company. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT, and I'm here with human resources expert Emerson Foster. He's the head of HR for the U.S. business unit at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Emerson, I know you're committed to fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion at Takeda and across the biopharmaceutical industry. Could you talk a little bit about what industry leaders can do to advance a more inclusive environment? Thanks, Angus. At Takeda, building and maintaining trust is critical to our culture of inclusion, learning, and curiosity. We do this in a number of ways, from enabling a workforce that's as diverse as the communities and patients we serve, to ensuring employees can live their purpose and speak up while confident that others will listen. Establishing that foundation of trust can help us achieve greater health equity and balanced representation. It's clear we're making important progress, though our journey has just begun. Thanks, Emerson. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's T-A-K-E-D-A dot com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you today, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. You ended your reading by asking, I'll quote here, how do we ensure that kids are safe at school while reaping the benefits of in-person learning? And that's actually something you and several colleagues tried to do by developing a model that predicts how the spread of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, can be contained by various measures. We will definitely spend some time talking about that, but I'd like to set up the model by starting a bit closer to home. Parents, especially mothers, though I know a lot of fathers are in the same boat, have spoken and written about how difficult it's been during the pandemic trying to juggle work and their kids' education. What was your work-home situation like in the last year? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's been a real struggle for most of us who have young children or even children who are in high school. There's sort of different uh, challenges with different aged children. But I think one of the things that we all came to realize very quickly, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, was that 
not having access to regular childcare and not having access to in-person school for your kids was not only a huge burden on the kids themselves because they were losing out on those education opportunities, but as parents, we realized we had to become homeschool teachers in addition to doing our full-time jobs. Um, and that was definitely a challenge. I think one thing I've learned is I have a lot more appreciation for all of the <laughs> elementary school teachers out there who are able to handle the rebunctious energy of all of our children. Um, you know, I think you often end up on a Zoom call with probably important people where definitely my six-year-old has burst into the room and had something to say and waved at the camera. And uh, at this point, everybody who works with me knows my son <laughs> because he often will pop in. Um, but uh, I think you just learn to adapt uh, and, and hopefully you have a good work environment that is, uh, that is helping to make sure that you can still be productive uh, while homeschooling as well. You know, those entrances by young'uns are some of the highlights, actually. Um, the wonderful breaks in, I'm not going to say monotony, but I'll say monotony of, of, of Zoom meetings. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the funny thing about Davi is that um, he knows that mommy's on a call, but he also goes to school over Zoom and he's encouraged over Zoom school to come in, wave at the camera. He knows how to use the mute button. And so when he sees mommy on a Zoom, he kind of <laughs> assumes this is the same idea. It's like kindergarten. So he'll come in and he'll like unmute and he'll be like, hi, everybody. And I'll just be quietly mortified and also just find it incredibly cute. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's, it's something we've all adapted to. And so has this been just a, a big struggle? How, how have you done through all this? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, a couple of things. I think especially for young children um, like Davi, who went through kindergarten in uh, distance learning, um, I actually find one of the more important parts of development is the social development piece, the ability to interact with other children, to understand how to do uh, sort of conversation, make friends, but also how to figure out how to resolve conflicts with each other. Because I feel like a lot of being five is just learning how to share and how to, you know, not fight over the same toys. Um, we were very lucky in that, um, you know, we have some good neighbors and friends who also have children of the same age. And so he uh, was able to be with our sort of pod families. We would get together outdoors with masks uh, and, and do, you know, biking in a parking lot or things like that. Um, but I feel like the areas that I see in young children um, that are not being developed as thoroughly definitely have to do with social development. As a former teacher, I, I used to think sometimes when I was talking to parents that parents would be thinking, you know, it's not that hard. I could do that. <laughs> I have a I feeling that you found out. I don't believe that's true at all. <laughs> <laughs> so if I have this right, then Dobby's about to enter first grade, correct? Yes, that's right. He's just started first grade. He did. First grade is a big step. I remember walking into St. Christina's School on the south side of Chicago as a first grader many years ago and thinking, I was a big guy. And that lasted about five seconds until I saw the eighth graders. Right. <laughs> um, so if Dobby started, how, how did he come home? What was he saying? Was yeah. It was so funny. Um, you know, his first day of school was probably more emotional for us as parents than it was for him as a kid. <laughs> I think, um, you know, at, at, at six, um, on the one hand, you know, he's got so much um, innocence and naivete. On the other hand, I think there's there's a lot to be learned about 
the maturity that a six-year-old can demonstrate in that he knew it was the first day of school. We've been talking about it for a while, but I didn't see any nerves. I didn't see any sort of uh, trepidation about going to school. I just saw excitement. Uh, you know, we were uh, on the first day of school. They had um, a lot of parents coming to do drop-off where both parents were there with the kids. So there's there's kind of a giant crowd outside on the parking lot um, trying to drop kids off. Uh, and he saw his friends immediately um, from class and he he like ran over um, and they hit it off right away. They were standing in the line together to get in through the front gate. Um, and I knew in that moment, I was like, okay, it's gonna be okay. He's gonna, he's gonna have a great time in first grade. Um, and that day when he came home from school, I was all excited to ask him. I said, oh, you know, how was your first day of school? Um, and he was like, it was fine. Uh, and then I asked him, you know, what's what's the name of your Classic. teacher? Right. What is the name of your of your friends? And he was like, oh, you know, I'm not really sure. And I was like, what was your favorite part? And he was like, lunch. There you go. He's a normal kid. Yes. So I'm guessing that a first grade classroom looks a lot different than the one I walked into in 1959. Have you been in Davi's school to see the classroom? What, what does it look like? Uh, here in California, um, we have uh, masks for everybody in school. Um, and then the classrooms themselves, they are full capacity. So there's 24 kids in his first grade classroom. Um, and they are all together in a single room. We're very lucky to have very temperate weather out here in the Bay Area. So, um, you know, the windows are open, the doors are open, there's good ventilation. Um, and, uh, and there's just that sort of mask wearing for all the kids and all the teachers when they come uh, when they come to school. I think the school has done a really great job of trying to adapt uh, with this new school year. Uh, you know, a lot of the school administrators, you have to give a lot of credit to them because this shape of this pandemic has shifted drastically from when they ended the school year last year in May to where we are this year, August, September of 2021. And, uh, you know, it's only been three months, but... Um, the Delta wave has changed a lot of the way we've thought about school and about safety. Um, and especially in the last few weeks, right before school opened, many of the school administrators had to make a lot of uh, safety precautions and changes um, kind of at the last minute. Does the speaking of Delta, does the emergence of that make you more worried? Uh, yes, <laughs> I, I am fully vaccinated. I definitely feel um, better knowing that this vaccine is protecting me from a severe outcome. But as a parent, when I look at my kid, um, knowing that he doesn't have access yet to vaccines, it's scary because one of the things that we've always held on to as parents during this whole pandemic is the idea that our children are less susceptible to this virus than adults. And that's why they've been mostly spared um, by this pandemic. But because Delta is twice or three times more transmissive, that kind of uh nullifies the uh, the susceptibility protection that children had before. Um, and so that makes me very, very nervous. Um, that being said, I know that there are mitigation strategies um, that can be taken to make a school more safe. Um, it's just about educating school administrators, parents, PTAs about what the value is in doing the right types of risk mitigation um, so that we can keep our schools open. You know, Six-year-olds can have a real wonderful idea of what's happening in the world and also be completely disconnected from it. Yeah. Um, does does Davi have a sense of what's going on and, you know, with the coronavirus? 
Yeah, this is a great question. For me, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't really talk about it that much, um, especially since we all thought it was just a five week long thing that we were going to all come back from. <laughs> um, and so, you know, for him, you know, five, six year olds are so adaptable. I feel like when you're a young child, your whole life um, from ages zero to five is just that there's a new thing that happens every few months that you didn't know about before. It's like, oh, I can walk now. I didn't know I could do that. Or like, oh, I'm talking now. Like, I didn't know I could do that. And um, and so to a certain extent, when we did lockdown and we said you have to wear a mask, these kinds of behavioral changes, I think kids are actually really open to that. They're constantly being given what they believe to be very arbitrary rules about how they live their life. <laughs> and so the idea that they have to now wear a mask and be distant from their uh, from other people um, actually uh, wasn't that confusing for him. He just kind of assumed this is yet another arbitrary rule for how I live my life. Um, definitely over the last year and a half, as he's grown from, you know, a, a new five-year-old to now a six-and-a-half-year-old, he's uh, learned a lot more. And, and also because he knows that mom is a scientist, um, we talk about it a lot. Um, and he, uh, he he asks all the time, he's, he asks me, when can I get my vaccine? Because um, he knows that um, it will protect him against uh, this virus. Um, and really for him, he's he knows that when he gets vaccinated and his friends get vaccinated, it'll be easier for him to, to do all the things that he wants to do. Well, that's a great way to understand it or explain it. So you all must be hoping for authorization or, or approval sooner rather than later for the youngest. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we know that those clinical trials started over the summer. We have to be patient, uh, but uh, as a scientist, I'm patient. As a parent, I'm not. <laughs> so um, I definitely am constantly sort of looking out for the news, hoping that uh, we might be able to get an EUA uh, approval, at least for the young kids, hopefully sometime in the fall. Um, I I've heard Dr. Fauci say that it might be uh, December. Um, so we'll see. Fingers are crossed for sure. We've written about parents kind of seeking off-label use of the vaccine for their kids. Would you ever go down that avenue? I don't think so. Um, I actually, one of the things I did consider uh, was to enroll Davi in one of the clinical trials um, for the young children. Um, and I would have done that if they were enrolling in my in my uh, geo, but they're not. So huh. I'm in the Bay Area and they're not currently enrolling in, in the Bay Area. Most of their enrollments are in Southern California. But in terms of off-label use, I think you, you have to be patient. You have to wait. Um, I know some parents have thought about that. Maybe my, my answer would be different if I had an 11-year-old, you know, who's mm. on the cusp of turning 12. Mm -hmm. um, I, I could see that. Um, but with a six-year-old, I'm just going to wait. Spoken like a scientist. So you and some coworkers at Color, along with some folks at the University of Washington, uh, built an interactive model that simulates the course of an outbreak after an infected person enters a so-called congregate setting. That's something like a school or a workplace or a jail or a church or whatever. What prompted you to to do that? I mean, a couple of things. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, and for me, the beginning of the pandemic was really when I start, started seeing the cases coming out of Wuhan. Um, so for me, it was 2019, December. Uh, I, I remember reading some of those preprints, and then there was uh, one big article that got published on a couple of case studies from Wuhan in late December. Um, and that's when they first named the virus, and that's when they first sort of acknowledge the sort of the the, the kind of scary uh, characteristics of this virus. Um, my immediate thought as a molecular biologist and a scientist was, what can I do 
this is an area that I know that I have some skills that I can bring to, to bear. Um, what can I do to help here? Um, and so when it came down to building the outbreak model, we actually built our first one in spring of 2020. And at, th at that point, it was really thinking about what could we do as scientists that would help people elucidate some idea of how to bring people back to work in a safer way. Um, so our first model was actually really concentrating on essential workers, people who like hospital workers, people who we knew had to be working. How could we keep them safe during this pandemic? And that's why we built the original model. And once we did that, I kind of decided actually, and this was with our collaborator, Dr. Carl Bergstrom at the University of Washington, you know, we collectively decided this is a tool that we can build that will actually help society think about reopening workplaces, reopening universities, reopening schools. Which is really, really cool. Did you, does it have umpteen variables or did you limit the number of variables? So when we were putting together the model, we knew we had to get two things right. One was, what are the characteristics of this particular virus? Uh, how long does it take for somebody to become infectious? Um, how many people are symptomatic versus asymptomatic? Um, what does the course of that infection look like in an individual? Um, and how, uh, for how many days after they've tested positive, do we expect them to continue to be infectious and things like that? So that was one set of parameters that we thought a lot about. The other set of parameters that we spent a lot of time debating is the actual network structure of the setting that we're looking at. So for schools, for example, we actually built two different models, one for elementary schools or primary schools, and one for middle schools and high schools or secondary schools. And uh, for that, it was really about thinking, how do people mix and mingle in these situations? So in the elementary school model, the way we built it was that the students were mostly within classrooms with one teacher, they could stay within that sort of cohort most of their day. Um, and they didn't necessarily intermix as much with the other classrooms versus in the high school model, you know, freshmen, sophomore, juniors and seniors, they're all together. They have different subjects with each other. They have different teachers of those different subjects. There's a lot more intermixing. And so we had to build that into the model as well. So we really thought a lot about the network structure down to even asking the question, what about people who, kids who are on the same school bus together? How do people get to school? Are they carpooling? Are they on a school bus? Are they being dropped off individually. So we, we thought a lot about this. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, a model is a model. Um, and it's only as good as the assumptions that you baked in. Um, so we tried as, as much as possible to think of, of all the different edge cases. So all things being equal, which is the more problematic scenario, the, the elementary school or the middle high school thing? That's, uh, yeah. So before vaccines, um, it was definitely high schools were a lot more of an issue because there's more intermingling of students mm. in high schools and because the kids who go to high school, they have epidemiology much more similar to adults, meaning that they are um, not their little kids are less susceptible to right, SARS-CoV-2 right. infection. So kids under the age of 10 who are mostly elementary school students, they are less susceptible. They're also less likely to be symptomatic if they do contract the virus. That was baked into the elementary school model. Whereas in the high school model, you know, a 15-year-old has very much the same epidemiology of disease as a 19-year-old or a 22-year-old. Um, and so when you baked in those assumptions, the high school was definitely a lot scarier because there was more intermingling and there was more transmission happening. And the elementary school definitely looked uh, less scary. 
Now with vaccines, this is a little bit flipped because mm. 12 and over are eligible for vaccination. And if you have enough vaccination in the students in a high school, you you're, you can be in a very uh, much safer place uh, versus in the elementary schools, because it's not an option uh, to be vaccinated. Um, you really have to rely on the other mitigation strategies. I just think about how difficult it must be for really young children who I think of as like human electrons, constantly in motion, you know, always bouncing into one another, um, as opposed to high school students who are a bit more aloof um, and easier to keep separated. Yeah, distancing is definitely not a thing that young children understand. Uh, you know, I, I remember trying to teach Davi what it is to stay six feet away from people, and he just, that was just not a concept that he could, he could understand. <laughs> So in the simulation that you created, um, and I want to urge anybody listening to check out this simulation. It's really cool. Um, you can go and play with the different variables. And the differences in viral spread as you manipulate the four variables are really impressive. What are the four key variables that you noticed coming out of this simulation? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, at the end of the day, what we actually thought more about is what does a school administrator or principal, what do what tools do they have available to them to mitigate risk? Um, we really thought about what are the things that you can you can control? Um, and as a school administrator, the things that you can control is are uh, you can think about, are you going to mandate mask wearing or not? Are you going to uh, change your ventilation within your in, in your building to increase airflow? Those are things that you can uh, sort of make adjustments of uh, yourself within the school. And then the other two is, can you ensure high vaccination adoption in your population in both the teachers and staff as well as the students? And then could you do proactive testing within your population? And really for us, that's the way we approached building the model was to think about, um, it's hard to give you a laundry list of all the things that could affect the outbreak potential within your popu population. Uh, it's easier to say, here are the things you can do something about. Here are the things that you have control over. Uh, and if you changed these parameters, if you made sure if people were vaccinated and you had people tested once a week or twice a week, um, here's what that would, how that would affect um, safety in your classroom. Um, when we first built the elementary school model, actually, back in uh, December of 2020, um, one of the parameters we actually built in was the ability to cohort. So the idea that you split your classroom in half and you have half the students come on you know, days A, B, and C, and then you have the other half of the students come on the other days. Interesting. Um, and s some of the schools were looking at that type of a strategy in 2020. Um, I think in 2021, at this point, everyone is having all children come back together into the classroom. Uh, but we really thought about, as a school principal or administrator, what are the measures that you have control over um, and how do we show you the usefulness of those measures? Interesting, the ventilation is being talked about a fair amount. Um, and it sounds like it's the kind of thing a school should be able to manipulate, but there must be schools that have the worst infrastructure and are poorly, you know, poorly funded that you really don't have that opportunity to change. Yeah. Ventilation is one of those things that a lot of people forget is something we have control over and can be very helpful. Um, at this point, it's pretty clear um, that 
the transmission potential in an outdoor setting is just much, much lower than in an indoor setting. And the reason is because of the ventilation. Um, and uh, at this point, we also know that if you can introduce more outdoor air and just good airflow into your building, so you're constantly pushing and recycling the air out, um, that that's going to make a huge difference. Um, it kind of makes logical sense. You're basically, if, if there's viral particles in the air, you're pushing them out of your classroom and recycling the air. Um, and so that is something that I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily think about. What's interesting is you could even think about getting things like a standalone filter for your classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, you can plug it into the wall. Um, it's like a HEPA filter and just sits in the corner. Um, and those kinds of things can also be really useful or something as simple as opening all the windows uh, and making sure that there's good airflow. If you're going to open windows on one side of the room, try to open some on the other side too so that there's a breeze coming through. Um, but even things like that can be um, quite useful. Yeah, uh, we'd always be looking forward to that in New England in December. <laughs> yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit harder if you have a lot of rain and snow. <laughs> Give, for, given the four variables that you chose to um, take a look at, things that people could manage, was there one that really stood out as the, the champ, the thing that if you could only do one of them, this is what you should be doing? Yeah. Um, I mean, here's how I would stack rank things. Um, vaccinations are some of the best tools that we have against this pandemic. Number two on that list, so number one is get vaccinated. Number two for me on that list is wear a mask, um, especially right now as we know about breakthrough infections happening and with a surge like Delta, um, especially with our kids, um, making sure to Part of the reason I'm always wearing a mask is because I want Davi to look at me and say, okay, mommy's wearing a mask. I should be wearing a mask. Modeling. Um, exactly. Um, and so that's something that is just incredibly important. Um, and then if you're going to have people coming into school every day or people coming into work every day, um, proactive testing is super important. And we do this uh, in our workplace. Um, proactive testing is, is the only way to identify that asymptomatic individual when they come in. So when you say when you say testing, do you mean testing everybody that walks in the door or random samples or how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so when I say testing and I mean when I say proactive testing, I mean testing every person that walks into the door. Interesting. Um, right. And the, and the reason that you would do this and that's the difference between proactive testing and surveillance testing. Surveillance testing is what you would do if you were just randomly sampling somebody in the population or you're going to take one sample from each classroom. Surveillance will tell you if somebody in the population uh, is positive or in what percent, maybe even give you an idea of what percentage of your population is positive, but surveillance is not going to stop chains of transmission. It's just going to sort of sound the alarm. You know, you have somebody in this population is, is positive, um, but it's not good enough to identify all the, all the people in the population. Proactive testing is every single person who walks through the door. Um, and that way you can give yourself um, this sort of, security that everybody's tested, everybody tested negative, and at least for the next day and a half, you know that people are uh, are negative. Um, of course, people have other activities and extracurriculars or other people that they see, so they might become exposed. And so that's why you have to proactively test um, every couple of days. Um, if you can, doing it uh, twice a week, so Mondays and Thursdays or something like that, um, is really, really good uh, because that really means then you're going to catch anybody who's coming into the population who might be positive and you're pulling them out of the population before they have the chance to infect somebody else. And that's incredibly important. So since you've gone public with this model or the simulation, 
Have you been contacted by school administrators or, you know, district superintendents or folks like that? Yeah. Um, well, you, you know, in my personal life, everybody kind of knows, uh, I'll just talk your ear off if you want to learn about epidemiology. <laughs> so I've become everybody's sort of phone a scientist friend. Um, and so I get a lot of calls from my friends and from fellow parents uh, when they have questions. I, you know, I actually, I love answering those questions because I, I think um, scientific communication is incredibly important. And when you're a scientist, you sometimes forget that, sure, you know a lot of things, but unless you can communicate them to other people, all of that knowledge is useless. Um, but then also, um, there have been uh, school administrators, superintendents, um, even concerned parents who have come across the model, and they'll email us and ask us about the model. Um, and uh, to the extent that we can, we really try to help. So we'll ask about, you know, where where is your school located? What does community transmission look like right now? Let's set those parameters in the model and try to give you the a, a closer understanding for you about how this model might show your specific situation. Does that include Davi's school? Do, 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 do the folks who run his school know about this and have they been in touch with you or vice versa? Um, I try not to be that parent. <laughs> um, but definitely, I know some of the other parents at the school and they know about the model. Um, and and definitely, I uh, when people ask, you know, have people thought about safety, I try to speak up. But I try not to be that parent that's just like, ah, like you have to listen to me. <laughs> I really appreciate your talking with me today, Alicia, and thanks for your efforts to, as you wrote, help ensure that kids are safe at school while still reaping the benefits of in-person learning. Yeah, this was a uh, you know, real pleasure and, and honestly so happy to be given this opportunity to, to do this. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well in this strange and uncertain time. 